So each of the last four or five years, actually, we've, we've taken some time as a congregation to, by faith, imagine the face of Jesus. And by faith, learn not only the words and the information, but the tone and the voice. And the way I'm getting after that this year is to look at the questions that people ask him. So when we looked at the book of John, we followed the structure that John uses. When we looked at Matthew and Luke, we followed the, the stories and the teachings of Jesus as best we could, looking at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And when we went through Mark, we just went through it one chapter at a time, which, gosh, seemed exhausting then. And now I'm like, why did I do that? There are nine different things that happened in Mark chapter one. And I tried to cover them all in one sermon, or I did actually cover them all in one sermon. And so this year, I'm taking smaller chunks of scripture that will then hopefully expand other things to us. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples asked Jesus why he used parables all the time to teach. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Gospels, but a lot of the time that Jesus taught was in the form of a parable. Some estimate that a third of the time that he spoke, it was in the form of a parable. In the book of uh, Luke, there are 24 parables. I think 18 of them are unique. In the book of Matthew, it's a slightly smaller number and, and a slightly smaller number of unique ones. In the book of Mark, there are less of them. But Jesus told a lot of stories. And sometimes he told stories because he wanted to tell a story just in and of itself. And sometimes he told a story as a response to something. And I think as we notice others asking him questions, not only are we, by faith, able to both see his face and hear his voice and understand the human side of Jesus, but also we find our own questions there. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think you have asked the question, why don't I understand the Bible better? I think you have wondered, why isn't church more riveting? And you rightly blame some of that on me. But Part of it is, why aren't the words of, why don't the words of life feel like the words of life all the time? Why don't the teachings of Jesus make total sense to me quickly and easily and interestingly? You've been reading the Bible and your eyes have glazed over. I mean, not you, but other Christians. You've been in church and it's not been interesting moment to moment to moment. And some of that is me. But some of it is us also. And I think when we listen to the disciples ask Jesus, why did you speak in parables? We get some kind of an answer to this question and learn a little more about who God is and who these neighbors are that we find ourselves in relationship with and who we are. If you have your Bible, the specific question that I'm looking at, I'm going to use a lot of texts, texts today even though one of my favorite preaching teachers says, pick one text and stick to it. I have like 18 today, so I just, I'm in charge. I decided to do it different today. I'm in Matthew chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on a beach and he told them many things in parables saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. 
Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Sometimes he answered a question with a story. Someone in a crowd asked him, who is my neighbor? And he answered with a story that probably is utilized every single day in our news cycle, partly because of the West, but I think mostly because of how compelling of a story Jesus told, the parable of the good. And we know it perhaps because we understand it, though I'm not at all sure our culture understands it at all, but because it was such a fantastic story told so well. There's a time in Luke 15, we'll come back to this text in a little bit later in the sermon, where Jesus goes to great lengths to explain what the Father's love looks like. Now, he could answer theologically, and sometimes he does. He could answer philosophically, and sometimes he does. I, here's, here would be my answer to the question of why isn't church more riveting in addition to me? Um, and why isn't the Bible always exciting to read? It's both because of the curse and because we're creatures. And so the condescension of God to explain to us means we will not be grasped by it as quickly and as clearly as we would like. And you're like, that was a really dull answer. And I agree. I prefer Jesus' answer where he talks about a sower and the seeds and how... People do not understand the word of God and why they don't. Jesus describes later in Matthew chapter 13, later on in chapter 13, what it's like to come to faith. And he describes it using kingdom language as a bridge. Jesus told stories to help us with our questions. I'll show you how profound of a teacher he was. Ready? How many of you are fully confident in your interpretation of the book of Revelation? Right. You're laughing, which is humble of you. I am going to preach on it in September, and I'm sure afterwards we'll all understand it perfectly. And all the bulls and the angels and the trumpets and the beasts and the people will know, we'll get it all. It's fine. I don't know why you're laughing at that, but... So the book of Revelation is both a letter and it's a prophecy and it's about the end times. And the point of all of the end times teaching throughout the scripture, the, the application of it, not the point of it, the application of it is be prepared. So the book of Revelation is a little bit confusing to us. We agree on that through laughter. Here's Jesus explaining 
the scope of things. This is in Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. If you look at the end times teachings of 1 Thessalonians, it says, be prepared. The point of the book of Revelation, there's a lot to the book of Revelation, but the application for you and for me is be prepared. And here Jesus, in telling a brief story, we know exactly what he's getting at, don't we? We might not define preparation quickly. I'll define it for you. It's don't wait to learn to forgive people. Don't wait to learn to pray. Don't wait to be generous as follower of Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at in Thessalonians and John is getting at in Revelation and Jesus is getting at here. Jesus told stories because they create bridges for us and they're disruptive bridges. Are you familiar with the parable? There's one about a shrewd landowner and his behavior's questionable. There's one where God is represented as an unjust judge. In one of the parables I referenced earlier in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus describes a man who finds treasure in a field, sells all that he has to buy the field. I don't even know if that's legal. But do I understand the point? That when this person understands the kingdom and that the kingdom is available to them, everything else becomes secondary. Jesus tells these very compelling stories as a bridge for us. Sometimes he explains the stories, sometimes he doesn't. If you're looking in Matthew chapter 13, the next couple of verses, not from the kingdom parable, but from the parable of the sower, is this. Picking up in verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And there is so much to that particular parable. But it explains, doesn't it? Questions we have. Why do some people come to faith and others not? It's right there. Challenging, a lot to attempt to interpret, and yet we understand it. Because stories are a bridge 
for us. And I want to go back just for a second to the, to the prophecy that Jesus explains in Isaiah chapter 18, because if we don't understand this, we will not get the human face of Jesus correct. I don't even know if correct is correct. isn't a good word. We won't get as close as we want to get by faith to understanding love incarnate and what that looked like and what it sounded like. Prophecy, in my opinion, is the most misunderstood part of the scripture, even more so than revelation and eschatology in my opinion. And it's not because we don't understand it, it's that we don't understand how large it is. Because we, what we naturally think is prophecy is about the future, and it is sometimes about the future, but it is more often a warning. And you're like, well, I don't, what does prophecy have to do with my Monday? To be able to picture the human face of Jesus, and to be able to hear love incarnate speaking, we need to understand why he says, you will indeed hear but never understand, you will indeed see but never perceive. Jesus both said that and alluded to it and then quoted it. What was he saying? This is Jesus talk and Old Testament talk for please listen. From a future sense, yes, some people are not going to... Jesus explains this in the parable, but the reason he's quoting Isaiah and alluding to Isaiah is as a pursuing move, especially to the religious people in front of him. That's why he quoted that. And that's why he said to the disciples, blessed are you that you see and hear and understand. It was a pursuing move. He's pleading with the men and women in front of him to listen to what he's saying. Jesus told stories as a bridge between his followers and the religious. And they are such good stories. You know that story in Luke 18 of how and why we persist in prayer or why we, it's a story where a woman is treated unjustly and she bangs on the door until the judge gives her justice and I do not like the story it makes me uncomfortable because God is likened to an unjust judge but I get it the purpose of the story is persist in prayer and the, the more you try and unpack um, the parables of the Bible and try to turn them into the theological treatises of, say, the New Testament letters, the less they work because we get the points of them so quickly. Even if there are parables that still trouble us, we know something about them afterwards. We understand something more about the character of God. I was uh, talking with a friend recently and they were listening to someone who was doing personality tests and they were running the characters of the story of the two sons in Luke 15 through a personality assessment. And I'm like, I think that's an adventure in missing the point. Like, Jesus did not tell us those stories so that we could dissect those characters based upon Myers-Briggs or Strength Finder or the Enneagram. I think he told that story to teach us something about the character of God. And it reminds us of how... listening to that and disagreeing with it strongly that we can personality dissect the characters and Jesus' stories reminded me of how accessible of stories they are. Not to understand fully, but to understand something more about the character of God. Jesus tells this wild story about a man who is forgiven of a vast amount and then who doesn't forgive someone who owes him a tiny amount. And people will unpack that until Jesus returns and write books about it, and yet we understand. We have been forgiven much, and we are to go out as forgivers. 
Later in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And I'm like, is that legal? Just let me know where I'm at. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. A couple of years ago, a pastor pointed out to me that in Romans chapter 14, defines the kingdom as the righteousness we receive from Christ, the joy we receive from the Holy Spirit, and peace. I'm expanding that a little bit. Romans 14 says the kingdom of heaven is righteousness, joy, and peace. So what Jesus is teaching us with this beautiful story is, what does it look like when someone comes to follow him? They receive joy. And the reason I kept bringing up that these stories make me uncomfortable is not just to be honest with you and allow you to feel uncomfortable also or not, but because there's a tendency in me to expect in a religious text behavior. Jesus stands up to teach and he's going to tell me to be good and that that's God's hope for me and that's God's best for me and it's even possible. And so when I read a story and I wonder about the legality of it, that's either a remnant or a stronghold in me of this sense that I'm supposed to be good, that that's the point of the gospel of Jesus, is act nice, be good, which has an, an assumption under it that is so unchristian, which is that you could ever be good enough to merit the love of God. Of course God loves you regardless but you desperately need the work of Christ to atone. And as Jesus tells the story, what I see over and over and over and over is a bridge between his followers and the religious, and for his followers, a disruption of their religiousness. And I know from 75 yards away, a person that believes that being good is the good news, and a person that believes that they can't be good but Jesus was good on their behalf and they received that and joy. They look the same. From 75 yards away, their actions kind of look the same, but internally, it's all the difference in the world between understanding the good news and understanding a lie. The good news is not be good. It is, in fact, you cannot be good. And rest from your efforts to try to please God. And by faith, receive that you are altogether pleasing to him because of Jesus. And that might sound like a subtle difference, but it's in fact not. It is the difference between religion, not as James defines it, but as we instinctively define it, that's ugly and wrong, and true freedom in life. Jesus told a long story in Luke chapter 15 that I believe you're familiar with. And we're going we're gonna to show a picture that I've shown before in the service, not a picture, a painting by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Earlier in his life, Rembrandt painted himself as the prodigal with his wife. We're not showing that painting. As he got older, he became more and more grasped by the beauty of faith. And the freedom of it, that it is not about our efforts. Efforts flow after we receive the peace and the freedom and the love of God. 
but by our effort, we merit nothing. Jesus described what I'm attempting to give language to so much better. In Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, meaning interrupting the speech. Bring quickly the best robe. Go ahead to the painting. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came and has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The disciples asked Jesus, Why do you teach in parables? And one of the reasons is to disrupt us from these two tendencies we have. To run from the pursuing love of God the Father. One way is through doing everything right. That's the older brother in the back. You can barely see his face looking on with resentment and anger because he did everything right with his money, with his time, with his words, with his family. And then there's a younger brother who was like, I'm going to do whatever feels good. And both of these are ways of running from the pursuing love of God. So I have one small encouragement for you. Some of you take devotional time, others of you do not. Some of you use the Psalms or the Lord's Prayer. You do it multiple times a day. Some of you are reading, studying the Scriptures. Before you begin, however you interact devotionally, take a breath. Say, Lord, help me to receive 
your love and then pause because that is the good news not to be good not to try harder it's in fact that you cannot try harder and so whatever you do devotionally if you don't do anything devotionally here's a one minute way of interacting with the truth of this take a breath Lord help me to receive your love you have already received it but you long to sense it Lord, help me to receive your love. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we long to sense and to believe in how your kindness pursues us. As we opened our worship service this morning with your pursuing kindness from Psalm 139, as we notice that the Father goes out to both sons, the religious son and the irreligious son, and say, says to them, all that I have is yours. Would you, would you guide our hearts to rest in that knowledge and truth and good news. Free us, Lord, from our religious tendencies into the true with God life, receiving the righteousness, joy, and peace of Jesus. Amen.